would say the same thing about Vance as well. He is out ministering in this right now, fixing people's air conditioners. So we need the rain, and they need the air conditioner. He needs the work. And, <laughs> and Kenneth needed to show off his voice, didn't he? All right. a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. All the love ever found comes like a flood I'm in all of you, where your love ran red. 
Bible, open it up to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. That song's been on my head quite a bit lately. On my head, in my head. You know what I mean. You know, ever got a song stuck in your head and you just gotta, just gotta get it out of there. And uh, it goes so well with the message tonight. The cross, the death, and the tomb is the message sermon title from John chapter 19, and we'll be looking at verses 17 all the way through 42. Last time we were here, two weeks ago, we took a look at the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and the cruelty of the soldiers that flogged him and beat him and were so ugly to him. And we get to verses 17 through 42, and if it wasn't enough, what he's already faced, he's going to face even more. And there are three very important acts that happen in these verses we're going to look at tonight that occur in the history of Jesus and his redemption of mankind. And we need to grasp not only the factual, historical uh, accuracy of these events and what he did for us, but especially as we look to witness to the lost. Part of the gospel message is witnessing to the lost about what price has been paid so that their salvation was secured in Jesus Christ if they would only practice faith and place faith into, into that, that wonderful price that Jesus Christ paid. But we also need to know why. We need to know why Jesus did these things, why he allowed these things to happen to him. And so as we look at this scripture tonight, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to read the scripture as I go through my points. And so my first point or my first scene of this scripture is the scene at the cross. Verses 17 through 27. And he, that is Christ, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it. They cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Verse 25, Now there stood by the cross of, his, of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he, uh, whom he loved, loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. The cruelty of men was not only that Jesus was to be nailed to the cross, but first that he must carry it to the place of his crucifixion. Now, John doesn't actually talk about that part of the scene of his crucifixion, that Jesus 
carried the cross, and more than likely it would be just the crossbeam of his cross. Most scholars estimate the walk from uh, where he was in Pilate's court to the place of his crucifixion was about a mile in length. And again, John doesn't capture the full moment where Jesus is so exhausted from, and from the crowd a man named Simon from Serene was elected to help carry the cross the rest of the way. We are told that in the other Gospels. Thank God for those other Gospel compilations. But verse 18, it says, There they crucified him. And we have to think about for a second who was at the cross and what was going on at the cross. You know, our minds are set on Jesus, thankfully, that he took that penalty on the cross. But in this, in this, in this scripture, I find it so disturbing what is going on all around him. All those that were against him. The location of Jesus' cross was public. Many passed by and the indication is that many stopped and gathered around the scene and began hurling insults onto Jesus. Perhaps they had been prodded to do so by the Jewish religious leaders. Perhaps it was just the culture at the time when you had public uh, executions. Verse 20 tells us that he was crucified near the city and that Pilate had a sign put above his cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and that it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin so that everyone could read it. Perhaps the ridicule that the passerbyers would throw out onto Jesus was because they saw the sarcasm in the sign. King of the Jews. What kind of king is crucified? But if that were not enough, this sign was actually just a, it was a, a, a little grenade thrown out from Pilate to the religious leaders as it started a fight. They didn't want that put on there. They wanted put on there, he said he was the king of the Jews. And a little argument started out, and Pilate said, no, no, what I've written, I've written. A lot of scholars believe he wrote it that way as kind of a skewer into their side. You made me crucify this man, well, I'm going to put what I want on there. Here he is dying on a cross, and they're having an argument about a sign on the, the, the upbeam over his head. These people that are throwing scorn on him, again, the passerbyers, the the. the uh, the Jews that are looking on, the Roman soldiers heaping on insults. Some of these insults are prophesied about in Psalm chapter 22. Don't turn there, but write down these references. Verse 12 through 13, here's what uh, David says about this, this scene. He says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Now, David was writing this about his current uh, goings-on in his life as his son had led a rebellion against him, and he's recognizing that there are many people saying evil things about him. But throughout time, this scripture has been applied to what is going on with Christ. And then verses 16 through 17, it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me, and they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. David's hands had never been pierced. Yet here he is making this statement about the ridicule he has been facing thousands of years before Christ would be on the scene. And he is describing something that Christ himself would be going through. And this is what he's going through as he's hanging on the cross. Another scene of the cross is caught in Psalm 22. Verse 18 of Psalm 22 says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
It's not enough that he's been ridiculed. It's not enough that he's been beaten. It's not enough that he's carried his cross a mile and now he has been nailed to this cross. It's not enough that the priests and Pontius Pilate are having a, a little fun and, and fighting over a sign hanging above his head. But now the soldiers are playing for his clothes. Whatever he had was right there. A couple of garments. It's caught, of course, in John chapter 19, what we just read. The Roman soldiers, after having nailed Jesus to the cross, they take his clothes. They tear his garments into four pieces and split it between them. And then the nicer garment, it was so nice, they didn't want to tear it up. And so what do they do? They gamble, casting lots. They're gambling over it. I don't want to gloss over this a moment. I don't want to just gloss over this moment and, and not really think about, truly think about what this is, what this is going on. What is going on here? Try to put yourself in the, in the scene, if you will. That might be kind of hard, but this is kind of an odd way of looking at it. You're lying in a hospital bed. The doctor has just come in there and delivered the news that you are going to die and you only have days to live. And your kids split up your property and then begin to play Texas Hold'em over the one thing they don't want to split up. And I don't say that to be funny, but how would that make you feel? They're not mourning over your death, they're gambling over your belongings. And this is what Christ is going through. This is what he is witnessing there upon the cross. He's paying for the sins of the world, and yet more sins are being heaped up. Why do we need to be familiar with this? Because we must understand the cruelty that Jesus faced and that he faced this for us, for you and for me. All of this was part of the price that had to be paid for our salvation. The scriptures say that we were healed by his stripes. He was beaten so that we could be saved. But not everyone at the cross was against Jesus. There were a few there that were mourning his death. There were those that were there for him. For instance, John, the author of the book, was there. And he lists four other ladies. Mary, the mother of Jesus. It says his mother's sister. It also says Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now we know who the mother of Jesus is. What's interesting about the Gospel of John is the first time we meet Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's at a party, a wedding, asking Jesus to make wine. And now, the next time we see her, are we going to lose lights? She's at a burial. She's at a funeral. And she's seeing blood being shed from her son. What I find interesting about that is that when we take communion, we relate blood and wine together. Then there's this woman, the mother of, or the sister of Mary, his mother's sister. Who, who is this? Well, Matthew 27, verse 56 tells us that the mother of Zebedee's sons was also there. You know who Zebedee's sons are, right? James and John, John, the author of this gospel. So John, the apostle, the author of five of the New Testament books, was also the first cousin of Jesus. And at this moment, I wonder if she remembered 
her request of Jesus recorded in Matthew 20, 20, verse 21. Jesus says, what is it that you want? She comes to him with a request. And she said to him, grant that one of these two sons of mine, James and John, may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. I wonder if while she looked upon Jesus being nailed to the cross with a thief on either side, if she remembered that request for her sons to be on the left and the right of Jesus, and now she looked with great mournful attitude and sorrow, thinking, what did I ask? We don't know much about Mary, the wife of Clopas, but Mary Magdalene, not the woman caught in adultery, talked about in John chapter 8, but Mary Magdalene, however, is the woman who was freed from demonic oppression as captured in Luke chapter 8. After he saved her, we know that she used all of her resources to fund the ministry of Jesus Christ. She was there for the good times, and now she's there for this sorrowful moment as well. And in this moment of his despair and agony, Jesus is still considering the needs of others. In this moment, he looks to John and his mother and ensures that there will be someone to look after his biological mother, to look after his mom. As a firstborn son, it was Jesus' responsibility to make sure that his mother was taken care of, that his mother's well-being was okay. And even though he had siblings, half-siblings, we know that at this moment they were not followers of his. And that may be the reason that he turned over the responsibility to his follower, John. There's a lot that is indicative of the scene between Jesus on the cross and John the Apostle. Chief among those thoughts is that even when Jesus was being crucified, he was still taking care of the needs of people. You know, Vance sings a song every once in a while, and Rhonda has sung it with him too. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. I think about this scripture when, I, when they sing that song. When he was on the cross, his mama was on his mind too. When he was on the cross, the disciple, John, was on his mind. When he was on the cross, you were on his mind. And he was thinking about your well-being, your salvation. I mean, that's, that's what he's doing here is securing our salvation. And it would have been about this time, even though the Gospel of John doesn't record it, that Jesus would have made this statement, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as we talk about the soldiers, when we talk about the passerbyers mocking him, when we talk about the soldiers gambling over his tunic, we know that this word, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing, is extended to them as well. What a gracious God we serve. And the next scene is the death. Starting in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that day was a high day, or a holy day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that, their, and that they might be taken away. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. 
And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again another scripture says, and they shall look on him whom they pierced. Jesus doesn't stay on that cross. He dies on that cross, but he doesn't stay on that cross. The cross was a mode of his death, and this was not a surprise to any who followed his ministry because Jesus mentioned and foreshadowed the coming death, his coming death. All throughout his ministry, he talked about his coming death and foreshadowed that this was going to happen. I want you to feel the weight of verse 28. Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It emphasizes that all that has happened up to this point, and surely all that will happen after this point, has all been put together and orchestrated by a very intelligent designer, a divine individual who knows all things. Remember, the plan of salvation was planned before the foundations of the world. Jesus Christ was not plan B. Jesus Christ was not God's, uh-oh, they messed it up. Jesus Christ was the plan before the foundations of the earth were ever laid. And knowing this, Jesus cries out, I thirst. I thirst. Showing his human, physical reality that Jesus faced. He was not facing this pain and humility as the Son of God only, and supreme power of the universe, but as God in flesh, feeling and experiencing everything that man would feel, the sorrow and the physical despair. Paul captures this moment in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Talk about humility. The very God who created water was now asking for something to drink. The very God who spoke the hysop reed into existence was asking for someone to reach up to him with the hysop reed and give him something to drink. The very God who created man to give him something to drink was being served from a distance as though he was some sort of criminal. Lest we forget, the death of Jesus Christ was by his choice. The death of Jesus Christ was at the hands and cruelty of men but it was as planned by God. And in verse 30, we are told, after he makes that famous statement, it is finished, what? He gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken away from him, as if he didn't know when he was going to die, but it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. He chose when that time would come. Every moment of the cross, every moment of the death, of Jesus Christ was planned out by the ultimate designer and in God's economy there are no coincidences and there are no accidents this was all by his design and though that were enough though that were enough the cruelty of man does not end there we're told that because this is the day of preparation for the passover the bodies could not remain on the cross another remarkable moment of God putting up with the hypocrisy of the Jews it's not holy for bodies to be on the cross during Passover. 
And yet, that's the very reason Jesus is on the cross at this moment. I pointed out last time this irony. Here they are concerned about preparation of the Passover. Passover was a celebration of a lamb being slaughtered so that the blood would cover over their doorway and give them a great escape from Egypt. And now here, the perfect Passover lamb has been slaughtered once again, and they're missing it on purpose. And so the soldiers are ordered to break the legs of those on the cross. You know why they're ordered to do that? Some of you may know why. It's because the cruelty of the cross wasn't just that they were nailed to the cross and wait to be bled out. The cruelty was as they hung there, their arms were just a little bit above them. And they were not able to breathe hanging like that. And so what they would have to do is, let me get scoot over here a little bit, is that with their legs bent, they would then have to lift up with their legs in order to open up their lungs enough that they could breathe. And that would allow air into their lungs and they were able to breathe. And so when the order is given to go and break their legs, what they are actually saying is make it impossible for them to breathe. And so the way that they would die on the cross was actually by suffocation. You see, they would normally wait until their legs would just grow so tired they could no longer lift themselves up. But by breaking their legs, they couldn't lift up at all. That's the cruelty here. But not Jesus. The Psalms foretold of how not one bone in his body would be broken. And here they come to break his legs. But Jesus designed when he would die. He gave up his spirit. It was not taken away from him. Even though he is subject to the cruelty of men, they have no hold on him. His life is not taken away from him. His life is freely given. And again, he chose when he would give up his spirit and therefore die. And so instead, they see that he's already died. So what do they do? Let's make sure he's dead. Let's stick a spear into his side. Because what will happen is, is if he's truly dead... A mixture of blood and water will come out from his heart. And so they do this. And again, fulfilling prophecy in a couple of different places in the Old Testament. You're probably more familiar with this one. He was pierced for our transgressions. Finally, the burial. Verses 38 through 42. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly... For fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. And now we get to that final scene of this horrendous chapter that has seen so much cruelty, so much violence poured out on God who loved all of humanity. And now he is dead and he is being taken down from the cross. And now we see two characters that we really don't hear a lot about in the Bible. Joseph of Arimathea, this is the first time he ever makes an entrance into Scripture. We don't know much about Joseph of Arimathea. All we know about him is that he's rich. And he is a secret follower of Jesus. He has some sort of influence. Some believe the Scriptures seem to insinuate that he's part of the Sanhedrin, that is the religious leaders. John says something, though, that's interesting to me. 
He says that he's a secret follower of Jesus. But how secret can he be? He goes to Pilate to ask for the body. He's there to help take the body down from the cross. Remember, this is a very public scene. And then he takes that body and lays it in the tomb. And the Roman soldiers had to have been there to help them push that stone up over the tomb. So how secret of a follower was he? Maybe up to this point he had been secret, but now he's letting the cat out of the bag. And the second character is Nicodemus. We know a little bit more about him. He's the one who came to Jesus in the night in John chapter 3. Came asking about salvation, about being born again. We get the idea that Nicodemus respects Jesus, believes in Jesus. There's a couple other places in Scripture we don't have time to look at about Nicodemus where he questions the religious leaders and they ridicule him. Because it seems like he believes in who Jesus is. I don't think there's a little doubt now. The scripture says that he had about 100 pounds of this mixture of myrrh and alloys. 100, that's a lot. I mean, 100 pounds. If you think about a feed sack of cattle feed, I mean, that's only 50 pounds. That's pretty big, right? This is a lot of stuff that old Nicodemus is carrying to the tomb to bury Jesus there's not much secret left there. The cat, again, is out of the bag. They brought all the necessary tools to bury the body with spices, the linen wraps. Some speculate that this tomb might have belonged to one of these two men. Or perhaps was even a family tomb. But what John does tell us is that this happened quickly because of the Jews' concern about preparation day. All of this happened quickly so that the body would be put in the grave before Friday came to an end. So that way Jesus was in the grave Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then he came out on the third day, fulfilling prophecy. So now what? Is my only point out to us that Jesus fulfilled facts and prophecy? Is it only so that he could say, I fulfilled Old Testament prophecy and maybe show how cruel men were? I want to point you back to verse 30. I want to point you back to a word Jesus spoke. Oh, you know this word. You've probably heard it preached. I know I've preached it here. He says, it is finished. There's a lot of important words in the Bible. These are three very important words. What was he saying was finished? Was he talking about the Old Testament? Had he completed all of the prophecy that, he, uh, that was spoken about him? Was he saying that there's no more prophecies to be fulfilled about me in the Old Testament? I don't think that's all that he's declaring. And this is important. The work of Jesus Christ that he has in mind with this statement is the redemption of mankind. And the important declaration of it is finished is not only about Old Testament prophecy, but about new covenant salvation. That it is accomplished in me and through me. We are burdened with sometimes feeling we have to somehow seal off our salvation. We, we are burdened sometimes with this feeling that we have to earn our salvation. We are burdened about feeling that we're not worthy of something that God only can give us. 
But when you're burdened with those thoughts that you have to somehow earn the grace of Jesus, that you have to somehow earn the salvation of God, remember these words. It is finished. I like to think about it like this. Instead of finished, it is done. But you see, mankind is always about doing. What do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus Christ says, it is done. It is done. In this world, many people are desperately trying to find out what they need to do to be secure in salvation. They believe that their salvation is dependent on what they do. They're convinced they need to do this or do that. Not realizing that salvation is solely dependent on what Jesus has done. And Jesus declares from the cross, and this declaration continues for all eternity. It is done, it is finished, it is accomplished. And this is not only for the lost, but Christian, this is for you too. You see, because when we mess up, we feel like we've fallen out of God's favor. and We've got to do something big to earn it back. Oh, I, what do I need to do to get forgiveness? What do I need to do to get grace? What do I need to do to get God's blessing? And Jesus is there on the cross saying, it has been done. It is finished. The favor of God is not something we earn. There are no sacraments of grace that will get us back into favor with God. The favor of God is given freely to all those who humble themselves to God as Lord and Savior and make confession of sin to Him. And so there, there is, if there's anything I can leave you with this evening, it is the truth that the cruelty, the scenes at the cross, the death and the burial was all about completing and securing your redemption upon Jesus. Therefore, there is nothing you can do except rely on what has been done. There is nothing to do. It has been done. And we need to live and celebrate in the reality of this truth. It has been done. All that I could need is done in and through Jesus Christ. There's one other word I want to point out to you. And this is for us, Christian. Verse 17. And he bearing his cross. Jesus Christ took ownership of that thing. It was his. And it was out of that conviction that when he was talking to his disciples, he made this statement. If anyone would follow me, let them lay down their cross, uh, lay, lay down their life, and take up their cross. It was an invitation to die. An invitation to die to self and live for him and through him and by him. Take ownership of the cross of Jesus Christ. As we talked about this morning, understand that when we align ourselves in faith with Jesus Christ, it's like Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that everything that we could ever possibly need was accomplished by you, through you, for us on that cross. And Lord, we can proclaim that you are alive in our prayer life and, and to our brothers and sisters and, and to the lost. It has been done. Lord God, I pray uh, just that we would get that and we would go out and proclaim that. And, and let it 